0: Welcome to the Habits of Leadership podcast, brought to you by Cut Through Coaching, helping leaders and their teams to thrive, professionally and personally.
1: Hello and welcome to episode 40 of the Habits of Leadership podcast. My name's Dan Hasler from Cut Through Coaching, and in today's episode, I'd like to share with you a recording of an interview I did with the late Sir Ken Robinson several years ago. Over the past decade, I've been fortunate enough to be invited to present alongside Sir Ken on numerous occasions. And in that time, we'd struck up something of a bit of a friendship. So it was an incredible shock to hear of his passing in August of this year after a a short battle with cancer. And having been asked a few times by different education publications and uh, different companies to kind of reflect on his legacy and the work that he um, you know, has, has done. I thought, well, I've got a recording here, which to my knowledge, hasn't been um, heard that widely. And so I thought I'd just put it out here. It's just a 20 minute chat that we had um, at an event, as I say, a few years ago. And I kicked it off by reminiscing about the first time, actually, um, I met Ken, which was back in 2010, at a small event in the UK and I was explaining to him that I wanted to bring my mum along to listen to him speak. Um, I actually met you briefly uh, probably four years ago now on on a tour and I was back in England and I I got on the phone to my mum and I said mum you've got to come and listen to this blog speak. Um, My mum's always had a fairly traditional outlook on education and um, I took her to, to see you and within a space of 45 minutes you basically changed her view on education, f- full stop. She's now arguably one of the biggest fans. She, she emails me when you're doing Desert Island Discs. Um, my question is this, your message resonates with kids, teachers, parents, people of all different ages, all different walks of life. Do you suppose that politicians haven't heard of you? <laughs> Or they don't watch TED, or they don't watch YouTube. Because I'm struggling to see why it is that a certain section of the community don't resonate with what you say. Well, I think what I say is
0: not very convenient for a lot of politicians. People hear what they want to hear. And um, I, I was saying a bit earlier, I don't mean to generalise about politicians as a class, though it, it's sometimes hard not to because they do keep doing the same things irrespective of party very often. Um, and they ha- they have their own agendas. Uh, the, the, you know, politicians are, for the most part, professional politicians these days. And those who take on the education brief, as often as not, don't see it as their final job, but as a stepping stone somewhere else. And I th- I'd say in recent years, in, in a lot of countries, uh, you see evidence that that education secretaries have a particular view. They, they want to be able to, uh, to generate uh, results and data that they can uh, use at the next election to say, I move the needle here. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of them are prone to what was once called McNamara's fallacy after the defense secretary in America, Robert McNamara. Mm-hmm. And it, it's the tendency to make the measurable important rather than the important measurable. Mm-hmm. I know that in the UK I, I chaired a whole national commission for the Labour government in the late 90s um, on creative education and the government, the commission, the report resisted implementing it at the time. Uh, I've spoken since to some of the, uh, the secretaries of state who are involved in that or some of the ministers involved in that and they say yes it, it was, uh, they regret that they didn't act more vigorously on the report but it wasn't convenient at the time politically. So I get that, you know, they have all kinds of agendas. My interest is in, is in kids and the quality of education and students and people and parents and families and all of that, and I think people hear that when I speak. Um, my experience is that they are not the first priority very often on the minds of professional politicians who are passing through the education system. So it's not always a message they're keen to listen to.
1: Um, you've spoken a lot um, recently about the ground up revolution because if we're being honest if we wait for the politicians to bring about this education revolution we, we're never going to see it I'm really interested to sort of get your thoughts on some of the I guess specific mindsets and, and um, attitudes and maybe even strategies even if it's just one or two that you've seen on, in, in your work that the teachers who are, are listening to this and watching this could try now I don't, I don't know if that's boiling it down to too basic a, a concept but are there certain things that teachers need to take on board if they're gonna be a part of this education revolution from the ground up? Yeah.
0: Well, firstly, I think it's important, at least I find it useful, to distinguish between kind of career politicians and policy makers in general. You know, I, I, I speak and work with people at all levels of education. Um, I spoke recently in the states at the annual convention of the National School Boards Association. These are uh, members of school boards from the 50 states across America who are responsible for the local school budget. And they've, they range from uh, a school board, which I think was in Wyoming. I was speaking to the chairman of that. I think there are six members of the board. And I said, how big is the district? And he said, well, we have one school. Because I think there are 50,000 school districts in America. And at the other end of it, you've got New York Public Schools, mm. which has over a million kids, and LA, which has close to that, mm. it's the second largest. So I've spoken to them, I've spoke to the Association of school Superintendents, and they hear it. I mean, I, I was in North Carolina recently, and they are uh, mounting a whole um, innovation campaign across clusters of schools in North Carolina. I was in Texas. Uh, where there's a whole movement against standardized testing that just passed a bill uh, that th- affects the schools in Austin, which is San Antonio, which is where I was, um, which was initiated by the school board. Mm. So I-, I really don't want to paint them all with the same no. brush. I mean, it's a very complicated field and people have all kinds of interests. Some of these changes are coming at that level. Uh, one of the people I know very well is a guy called uh, in the Ottawa Carlton School District up in Canada, mm. called Peter Gamwell. He's initiating a whole movement across the the school district, uh, same as happening up in uh, Saskatchewan. So you know, there aren't big changes happening in different parts of the world, and I'm all for encouraging it. So I don't think, I don't feel I'm a lone voice. I'm I'm making a distinction really between them and some of the career politicians who I think are not inherently invested in education in the way that they say they have to be, you know, or the way they have to say they are. Mm. Um, So uh, my argument about this is that, is that, Everyone, the, the, when people talk about how do I change the system, how can I change the education system? My argument is that we have to understand what type of system it is. If you think of it as uh, a monolithic, homogeneous, fixed industrial system, you know, like some you know, some great conveyor belt. Chair. Uh, I mean, I've worked in those. I actually did as a student work in those factories, and there was nothing I could do to change the production line. I Either kept up or died in the attempt. You know, that was it. You know. Um, if you think of it that way, then you think that there's no way you can change this thing as an individual. Mm. But it's actually not like that. It's more, uh, it's more of a biological system. It's what systems theory is called a complex adaptive system. Mm. Complex in the sense that there are lots of interacting uh, elements of the system, which affect and change each other. It's not just schools. It's uh, psychological services. It's probation services, it's universities, it's trades colleges, it's made up of parents interests, it's, there are boards made up of employers, there are student interest groups. You know, so it's a very complex, tightly interwoven intricate system, that's the first thing. So it's hard to shift that by fiat. And secondly, it's an adaptive system in the sense that it is constantly evolving. If you look at the education system now, compared to even ten years ago, there are big changes going on. Uh, changes about uh, to do with uh, the, the price of higher education have affected rates of application to higher education. Um, the declining value of university degrees has, has made more people realize that, they, that maybe they should be taking vocational programs. The growth of technology has changed how teachers think about teaching and the way kids are learning. So it isn 't static, but there is a dominant culture which bears down on it, which is to do with testing, and it 's that thing that we have to start to shift. Um, so I always say, want to say to people who work in the system that that you are the system mm. you know, in in your daily activities. You, you are a manifestation of it. Mm. And if you change your practice, you change the system. Your bit of it. If you're a teacher, if you do things differently, you change the world for the kids in your school. So don't wait for somebody else. Because mm. revolutions don't happen from the top down, it's very unusual to find uh, an establishment that legislates against itself. Yeah. You know, what happens is it comes from the top up from to, to the bottom up. Yeah. And sensitive and sensible governments will respond to that. I mean, take a, a different case at the moment, for example. In America right now, where I live, uh, state after state, the two interesting things going on, state after state is legalizing same-sex marriage. Yeah. That would have been unthinkable 20 years ago even ten years ago, in some of these states five years ago. Uh, But now, politicians who would have run a mile from the conversation are now rushing to the podium to say what a good idea it is. And that's not because they thought it was a good idea, but because the weight of public opinion is is rising up and they are adapting to it. Um, Another one is the legalization of marijuana. I mean, that was completely off the agenda, and now it's not. And it's not because politicians have been pushing for it. It's because they've been responding to it. Yeah. And they realize there's a pressure that they can't resist. Yeah. And I'm not sure which of those are the best analogy for education reform. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I'm saying. But there are shifts that come up through the culture. Yeah. And I think if people have enough confidence and, and are sufficiently fired up about the the injustices and inequities of the system that they feel they're being forced to operate within. If they push for change themselves and manifest the change, then the pressure builds for systemic shifts at the policy level, and that's what we all have to be aiming for.
1: Yeah. So with regards to, I mean, I work a lot with teachers all over Australia, and I'm yet to find one who tells me the reason they went into teaching was to raise the state's NAPLAN score, which is a, you know, um, equi- yeah, the standardized test equivalent. And yet, often you, you revisit those teachers a few years down the track and, and they'll tell you that they can't deviate from the curriculum and they can't do this and they can't do that. And the system, in a way... Takes away their idealism and it takes away their energy to to be the teacher that they wanted to be when um, you know when, when they went into the profession. As someone who's worked presumably with um, early career teachers at some point or um, at, at universities or, or what have you, what kind of words of encouragement, support, or inspiration might you offer those teachers? Because what I'll say is that you know your idealism and your energy are two most important gifts. Don't lose them. How how can we keep that going you know when we see so many young teachers leaving after just five years in the job for example?
0: Well the first thing is that you're right I mean I've worked with schools for my entire professional life and um, I mean I started working in education pretty much from the age of 18 you know and I went to train as a, a teacher of English and drama and worked in schools then and got into research quite quickly, but the research was classroom-based research. I then worked with schools all over the country. In, uh, uh I think we worked in six local authorities about three years. Um, and then I ran an arts and schools project where I think we worked with 300 schools in 40 local authorities. My work has always been school-based yeah. and classroom-based. And then um, I worked at, uh, and I always, I always, part of my work has always been running Uh, professional development programs uh, for teachers for administrators doing whole system reforms Mm. and then I went to work because of all that where I was responsible for the initial teacher training program and the postgraduate training program uh, for for several years so um, yeah I mean I I know what you speak and of what I speak too because it's what I've always done Uh, so I'd say a couple of things one is that is that um, that There is more room for innovation than many people think. I I always want to say this to teachers, once that classroom door closes, what happens then is up to you. And there are brilliantly creative teachers doing wonderful work in settings that aren't encouraging it. I mean, for example, uh, there's a guy that I've got to know recently though I've known about his work for quite a long time, uh, works in LA, his name is Rafe Esquith. I don't know if you've ever met him, but uh, he's written a book about his work, but he's worked in the same classroom in, uh, it's called the Hobart Elementary School, it's in Koreatown in LA, which is a a, a kind of low-income area. Um, A lot of social problems in in that part. It's a, a very large Asian community, many of them first generation immigrants into America. Most kids go to Hobart school, don't speak English when they get there. Uh, and typically for that area, there's a pretty high non-graduation rate from high schools. Rafe has worked in the, same, in the same classroom, in the same school for over 30 years. Every one of the kids who goes through his hands, uh, I think nine, 10 year olds for the most part, go on to graduate from high school. The great majority of them go to college of one form or another. Many of them have gone to Ivy League colleges. Uh, a number of them have formed a foundation to support race work. Now he does all of this, guy, yeah. without much support from the school, but he, he does all of it by teaching them Shakespeare. Really.
1: Yeah.
0: Every year he takes a play he does all the other stuff you have to do as well you know, yeah. as, as part of the the school curriculum, but the centerpiece is they take a Shakespeare play every year, he's done it for 30 years, and they do a production. Uh, which is performed in the classroom at the end of the year. Uh, They put bleachers up, they get about 40 people in. And all the kids perform in it. Uh, They not only do that, they they learn the play. And through learning the play, they learn to speak English really well. They also learn instruments because they play the music live, which they work on with Rafe during the course of it. Uh, I've been to see it. They have visitors from all around the world come to see him. Uh, Ian McKellen was there recently, Said it's the best Shakespeare production he's ever seen. It's in some little little elementary school in Koreatown, Los Angeles. And I watched these kids and they were just a delight. They were singing three, four part harmonies. They were speaking Shakespeare beautifully. These are kids who couldn't speak English before they got into Rafe's classroom. Couldn't play an instrument until they could, then they all leave. And they all go off to do really interesting, successful things. It's one teacher. And he he actually wrote a book called Teach Like Your Hair's On Fire. Um, So individual teachers can make a huge difference Head teachers can make an even bigger difference. And uh, I always feel this that if, if individual teachers are working in schools and think the culture's hostile, you've also got to look at what the head teachers do, what the principal's doing, because they can do a lot to shift the culture of their own school. There are a lot of habits in schools that don't have to be followed. Also, I mean, Richard Gerber demonstrated that, and there are plenty of head teachers around who've done, taken different approaches to reorganizing the school culture, because a lot of things that go on in schools are not required by the legislation. Mm. No child left behind doesn't say you've got to divide the day up into these 40-minute bits Mm. and do nothing but that. The weight of evidence is that people end up doing that. Mm. But but I've spoken to some of the architects of that that legislation in America and they throw their hands up and say, that's not what we meant at all.
1: Mm.
0: Well, they could have put it differently in that case. And I'm not not being naive about the pressures of testing. Mm. But even so, there's more room for manoeuvre. And you're right, I think young teachers particularly need to be strongly encouraged to develop their own practice and to recognise that teaching is a complicated and difficult process and just throwing you in at the deep end isn't if they need the
1: support and that's where you need to look at the whole ecosystem of the school and of the district. If I may, i just finish with one more question. Um, events like Edutech um, here in Brisbane, um, it, it brings together a lot of people from all facets of education, whether it's the technology side, the the thinkers like yourself, the practitioners on a daily basis. Just as um Someone who obviously goes to a lot of these kind of events, what do you think is the the best thing about these events other than yourself? Uh, the best thing about um yeah, you're struggling now what's the what's the best thing about having um events such as these, and do you think they um you know really can push forward the education debate in in the, our respective communities?
0: Uh, well, I do feel that, like, and th- there are several things one of them is that Often enough, it could be less so, but often enough, teaching is, is a, from an adult point of view, it's a fairly solitary activity, in the sense that the the dominant practice in schools is that people go to their own classrooms and teach their own lessons, and they then meet up in the staff room, and often they fraternize with a particular group of people you know, in their own discipline, if it's a high school. Um, it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, I, that's one of the problems of schools, I think, that that they are too siloed. Some of the best schools I've ever been in are not like that at all. I don't mean it's all open plan, I mean there's a lot of collaboration going on. And, uh, and, and properly conceived, uh, teaching is is another form of learning. The best teachers are learning all the time and, and students have a lot to teach. So I think if teachers are learning at the same time as they're teaching. Uh, I remember, uh, I don't know if I mentioned last year, but I. Uh, I was saying today, I did an event a couple of years ago with the Dalai Lama, and and he was asked a question. There was a very long pause in the room, and and we're all sitting "I think this is gonna be great, you know, it's the Dalai Lama. Wait till he he comes up with this. And we're all leaning forward metaphorically, waiting for him to to answer. And they took a breath, and they thought, here we go. And he said, I don't know. "What, What do you mean you don't know? You're the Dalai Lama, of course you know. But he said, I'd never thought about that. What do you think? And I think that's great. It's a very simple point to make. But here's one of the world's great teachers, who's quite happy. I don't know. And I think we should all be prepared to, to recognise that nobody knows everything. If you don't know the answer, it's perfectly fine. So I, I really Do you know, or can we find out? And all the great teachers I know are you know, they're collaborative learners with their kids, but also with the other teachers. So, but, but the fact remains: at the moment, more often than not. Uh, it can be, from an adult point of view, there can be too little contact with other adults. So although people talk about it being a profession, it's hard often to understand just the scale of it. So an event like this, which brings together 4,000 or 5,000 people uh, for collective conversations and networking and collaboration, it's the kind of thing that happens more often, I sometimes feel, in other professions. People get together more, they collaborate maybe more. So here it's a great opportunity for people to, you know, to look around the room, to feel part of something bigger than themselves, and that's a very important feeling to have, I think. Uh, and secondly, this helps to illustrate what a complicated and, and dynamic profession is, because you've got people from all levels of, of education. It's not just schools here, it's universities, it's colleges, people doing, uh, you know, from technical and further education, um, from some of the other uh, related sectors for education, support and service sectors. So there's a chance for people to see a bigger picture than the one they see every day. And then you've got all this leading edge technology, so it's not just a way of taking stock of what's happening at the present, but it's giving you some glimpse at least into where this all might be headed in the future. I think it's an absolutely vital part of the professional development of of teachers and other educators.
1: So Ken Robinson, it's been an
0: absolute privilege and a pleasure, pleasure. thank you very much. Thank you Dan, it's a pleasure. Great.
1: So should we try that with the
0: cameras on, what do you think?
1: The late, great Sir Ken Robinson. He'll be missed by everyone who met him. He um, had an incredible capacity to make you feel like a friend, like a colleague, um, even if you'd only met him for five minutes. He had this incredible generosity of spirit, which meant he wouldn't leave an event until everyone who'd wanted to have a chat with him was able to have a chat with him. And I saw firsthand how his... uh, Orga, event organizers would be trying to hurry him onto the next part of it, and and he he would simply say no. People are waiting. People have queued up to to speak, to meet, to talk about um, his books, or just to introduce themselves in general. And that was just the measure of the man. He really was someone who cared deeply about education, but I think more so he cared deeply about people and um, ensuring that people's potential and people's you know, um, passions really were valued, even if perhaps the systems they found themselves in didn't necessarily place that much value on them. If you found the chat with Sir Ken interesting, you might want to also check out episode five in which uh, is a, a chat we had more recently. Um, and we, again, the focus is primarily on education, but I'd also urge you to, um, go to his website, sirkenrobinson.com, where you can, um, get hold of his books and access all of the talks that he's done, um, during his illustrious career. But until our next episode, thank you very much for listening. Take care. Take it easy.